Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. All the great writers say, hey, you want to be inspired and you want to get up and drink coffee and lattes and feel real precious about this. Oh, bless your heart. The real writers bust their butts. They get to work when they like it and when they don't like it and they plow through. And so there's just no other way to do it but to do it. Hey, it's Ryan, and this is The Prolific Creator, where we talk about life and art and see what sticks. And today, my friends, I am so pumped to have Daniel Grothy on the show. And Daniel is a new friend. Uh, He's a pastor. He's a writer. He's a creator. He lives on a farm. If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. And I'm really excited to have Daniel on the show today. And Daniel has a brand new book uh, that has come out, The Power of Place, and choosing stability in a rootless age. And it's a fantastic book about the ways in which you and I can be so restless and feeling like we always have to move around and, and start new things and do new things. And, and it's and sometimes place gets ignored. And so we're going to have a great conversation about his book, but we're also going to get into the deep weeds of his creative process, which I know all of you love. We talk about process. We talk about creating in, in particular for Daniel and writing Uh, But how does it get words on the page? What does that look like for him? And so I know there's going to be a lot of things that you can uh, take from his process. And you're going to hear about his experiences, his ups and downs of writing and publishing and all those those good things. And there's also a fun little wrinkle in this conversation is that Daniel and I have crossed paths in just such a very strange way. And so months and months ago, uh, someone reached out to me to say, hey, you need to interview Daniel. Uh, he has a book coming out and he'd love to chat about it. And I said, great. Sounds like a great book. Sounds like a good dude. Let's do that. And I had no idea that Daniel and I are in the same graduate program in Western Michigan. And so I show up uh, to this graduate program at the end of October. And then I hear this guy's name and I hear about his book. And I'm like, okay, who, who's this guy? This sounds really familiar. And then I realized that I had booked him months out on the podcast. And so we are in the same graduate program. 
That's why I'm saying he's my new friend. We're getting to know each other a little bit. So it's really cool how those things collided, how our lives have collided, even though we live in different states and different places, but we're all in the same uh, same program. So so very cool there. And uh, secondly, want to wish all of you a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I think we are post Thanksgiving when you're ever you're listening to this. Uh, if you are in the United States where we celebrate Thanksgiving and I have really good news. I only had leftovers nine times since Thanksgiving. So better than last year. Uh, but I hope you had a great Thanksgiving with family and friends, maybe church family and hope it was a great time uh, just to relax and shut some things off. Um, I know for me, um, those of you that participated in national novel writing month, uh, during the month of November, uh, those that were trying to write 50,000 word rough draft of a novel during the month of November. Uh, I've been doing this for the last eight or nine years. It's been a great, uh, practice for me to get words on the page. I, I know I've been doing that and I finished actually on Thanksgiving. Um, and so if you did that and you attempted that this year, Hey, praise to you, applaud to you. Good job. Amazing. Uh, to get any words on the page, to get anything done when it comes to writing is an absolute miracle. So whether you got 50,000 words or five words, keep going, keep it up. Uh, and so if you, and if you haven't ever done national novel writing month, I'm a big proponent of it. I encourage you to do that because supposedly 81% of the people in the world want to write a novel. Most don't. Um, and so, and it, it doesn't have to be a novel either, but, but just to get those words on the page to have a practice to do it. And I, and I love how hundreds of thousands of people compete in this competition every year. So go check out national novel writing month, nanorimo.org. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. And you can check that out. Uh, it's just a great way to, to get words on the page and also to do it with other people as, as I do, do it with friends and, uh, with the community and we, we root each other on and we rag, raz each other and, and it's a lot of fun. So, so check that out. And then uh, a couple other things, uh, one other thing or two other things is go check out the website, ryanjpelton.com and got some free resources up on the website and also our newsletter. Just want to encourage you motivation Mondays, um, or Monday motivations, motivation Mondays, um, is my little newsletter. I I'm very, um, sporadic with that. I try to be more consistent, but sometimes it doesn't happen, but I at least send out notes to remind you of podcasts when they come out. Uh, articles that are coming out, books that are coming out, updates on me, other things going on, uh, resources that I love. Um, so check that out. Just a way, great way to stay connected. And then secondly, if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes, uh, just leave an honest rating review. Uh, the more honest and the better rating helps us. But uh, we really appreciate you doing that or wherever you listen to podcasts. It just helps us get the, the word out. Uh, I'm not going to have anything at the end of this conversation. And so this is all you're going to hear from me. Um, it's uh, November, depending on when you listen to this end of November, getting into December. I can't believe there's a new year coming. Um, and Hey, I know it's been a trying year. Um, and actually a, a trying couple years with the pandemic that's affected all of us globally and, um, not to get political, not to uh, get into those weeds, but really just to say that, I think more than ever, creators, artists, poets, people that write things, people that build things, people that make things, uh, more than ever uh, do we need to put good art and um, create new cultures and good culture and put that out into the world. So whatever you're doing, whatever you're making, whatever you're building, it's important and it matters, especially in these trying uh, times. And, and so be encouraged by that. I know it's, it's still we're still not out of the weeds yet. Um, around the world as far as the pandemic goes, but, but be safe, uh, be smart and, uh, just keep encouraging each other, building each other up and uh, making good art. And so without further ado, that's enough of me. Here's my conversation with Daniel Grothy and I'll see you guys 
real, real soon. Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the Prolific Creator. So excited to have Daniel Grothy on the show today. And it is just, I don't know, God's sense of humor, uh, <laughs> ironic that we now know each other in a special way and we didn't yeah. know we knew each other. And anyway, there's some weird connections going on. So Daniel, why don't you say hello and uh, we'll, we'll begin there. Hey, Ryan, I'm thrilled to be here. And yes, Ryan and I are in a doctoral program together. So he booked this podcast with me before we knew we'd be in the same doctoral program. And then we got on planes and went out to Michigan and we show up in the same classroom. And here we are now on this. So it's a treat to be with you today. Which I think is just absolutely hilarious. And uh, and then we were talking this last, well, I guess a week ago, and find out we lived in the same city, worked in the same city for a while. So just a small world. Um, so, but I'm really excited to have you on the on the show because you have a new book out, uh, "The Power of Place: Choosing Stability in a Rootless Age," that just came out uh, really just a couple of weeks ago. And excited to talk about about that. Um, but also, one of the things I, I noticed was we have a, another common connection is is just our our love for Eugene Peterson, and. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize that you had an actually close friendship with Eugene, got to spend yeah. some time with him, um, read a little bit about that, but, but tell me a little bit about Eugene and your relationship, because one of the things that he talks a lot about is place and locality and Absolutely. putting down roots. And yeah. so, so go from there, wherever you want to. Well, my first, my first book that I wrote is called Chasing Wisdom, The Lifelong Pursuit of Living Well. And it's the story of finding Eugene Peterson when life really fell apart for me and my church. So out here in Colorado Springs, um, came out here. Uh, when I got here, our senior pastor was uh, the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. Our church was riding high. Uh, that was a 30 million member group, the NAE, and our church, 14,000 members. And we were kind of the figureheads. You know, when Congress was debating same-sex marriage legislation, they would call us and they'd say, what do Christians think? And and Mel Gibson flew out here on a private jet to release the Passion of the Christ to 3,000 pastors before it hit, you know, the theaters. And George W. Bush, when he was president, Skyped into our pastor's conference. So we were just kicking butt and taking names. Just ask us. And uh, we were kicking butt and taking names until we weren't. And our senior pastor was caught in a salacious scandal, heartbreaking loss. He's fired. Uh, the church is heartbroken. We're embarrassed. We're there's just so much drama and trauma. And we finally get a new senior pastor, and on his 100th day in the office, uh, we just finished the Sunday morning service. And uh, I'm standing at the end of our children's hallway, and I hear the worst sound you could imagine anywhere, let alone in church. And that sound is bop 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 bop. A shooter runs on our campus with an AR-15 and a thousand rounds of ammunition and a couple handguns and is spraying bullets everywhere. And he kills two teenage girls in our parking lot, races in our children's hallway, and is just unloading that gun everywhere. We're diving under desks. A security guard stops him and shoots him in the leg, and then he ends up taking his life in our children's hallway. So we've got a double murder-suicide on our new pastor's 100th day in the office after losing our founding senior pastor to an international scandal. It's just so much pain. We had hit the very bottom of the valley of the shadow of death. And I go to a Goodwill on a Monday morning and looking at the used books, as was my custom. And I'm this young 24-year-old heartbroken pastor at a church that's just destroyed. 
And I see this book on the shelf, The Contemplative Pastor. And I'm, well, I'm a pastor. I, what is this? And Eugene H. Peterson. And I thought, didn't he translate the message? So bought it for 99 cents, read it that day, uh, 171 pages, couldn't put it down, finished the book. And I just thought, that is what a pastor ought to be. And I want to sign up to live that kind of life. So I wrote Eugene a letter. Long story short, he responded, yes, I'd be willing to have you here in Montana, period, but not so fast, period. Write three pages on what is church and three pages on what is pastor to see if we even have enough common ground to begin a conversation. And that interaction began a 10-year back and forth with Eugene. I took 10 trips with him went out to their house, stayed, prayed, hung out. He shaped my life. We wrote letters. And he really became, this book that I wrote was the story of finding a sage in Eugene Peterson, Chasing Wisdom. And so it tells a story of me and Eugene in each chapter and something that I learned from him. So Eugene is, talk about prolific creator, uh, world-class writer, poet, um, preacher, and he has he entered his rest three years ago, but he has become sort of the chief rabbi around here at New Life, and a, a, a provocation to me about the craft, being clean, doing the work, and being serious about it. Well, I, I love that, and I you know I'm actually glad I stumbled upon that. I think you you wrote a couple articles about it and a little bit of your your story and. I, I had read just this morning, uh, this book that we were actually given in our writing group about this interaction between his son and writing back, back and forth. And they're both pastors and just giving him wisdom about the pastoral ministry. And one of the things he talks about is he pastored in Maryland and then driving back every summer to Montana. And that's where he kind of grew up and, and yeah. his family had a cabin there and all that, and just how life-giving that was. And I, I was kind of thinking about our, our conversation today and just the, the, the idea of place and how significant that is. And so before we get into the deep weeds, um, I think it's a good question is, is you're from a place. And yeah. so let's talk about who you are, what's, what's your origin story and how this idea of place has just kind of shaped you. Yeah. You're not, you're not serving in a place like where you're from, right? You're, you're yeah. in kind of a, a foreign land, if you will, but uh, yeah. let's, let's talk about that. Talk about a little bit of your story and, and where you came from. Born and raised Tulsa, Oklahoma, lived there for 22 years. My parents have been pastors for 45 years, so I was the kid born in church and raised in church. And, bro, I love seeing that quick trip cup, right? <laughs> the quick trip takes me right back to 71st and Lewis in Tulsa, Oklahoma. QT is a Tulsa company. Oh, yeah. So Tulsa is the place that shaped me growing up in church, weddings, funerals, hospital visits with my parents. And I thought every little five-year-old was doing funerals alongside their parents and going to <laughs> And so that really shaped me. Um, my mother's side is from Idaho, and I have generations of agrarians, farmers, salt of the earth, hardworking people. Uh, so land, we would go out there in the summers and work the sod farm with my grandpa and I'd be helping drive the tractor and stacking sod and putting it on pallets and putting the pallets on the back of the flatbed with the forklift. And so working the land right on the Snake River, the, the my favorite smell on the planet is freshly cut grass. I, I think it's just from growing up out there with grandpa doing the work with him. And so uh, an attention with my own parents, an attention to the stories of people that play out in a particular place, a local church community. 
And then my agrarian ancestors teaching me to hallow the ground and that uh, they loved a particular place their entire lives, 86 years. Grandma Wheezy's 90. She lives on the same land still. And so I just, place matters. And then you find Eugene Peterson and then folks like Wendell Berry, who I think Wendell Berry is sort of the agricultural um, contemporary to Eugene's pastoral imagination. So Wendell's love for the land and Eugene using the land and place as a metaphor for life in the body of Christ. So to me, I, I just think we live in this moment where we want to transcend and we want to, we want to rise above all of the limitations and the particularities of our places. But you look back through Christian history and the saints are always from somewhere. You got Augustine of Hippo and Hildegard of Bingen and St. Francis of Assisi. You got St. Catherine of Calcutta or St. Teresa of Calcutta and Jesus of Nazareth. And so, I don't know, I, I think we could stand in our age of wanderlust to find our way back down into the soils of our local places. Well, I, I think this book is very timely, and, and maybe it's it's something that you and I probably experience a lot just in our work as, as pastors, is that, you know, people are coming and going all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, some totally legitimate reasons, you know, other times it's just, I got to go find myself or, you know the big promotion or, or what have you. Um, but th- there is something about, about locality and really putting down roots in one place for a lifetime or, or a long period of time and, and what can, can come of that. Yep. And, um, you know, going back to Eugene's story of going to Maryland, which he's not from, he starts this church. He's there for 30 years. You know, there were these moments like uh, where he was, I want to, I want to leave. This isn't home. Yeah. This is, these are suburbanites. I'm not used to this, you know, and wanting to go back to Montana yet giving it 30 years and just what was able to be birthed there and grow grown there. And so, so talk to us about a little bit of your story because you've been in, in Colorado, I think for about 16 years or so. Yeah. yeah and, and I didn't, yeah, I have to admit, um, I, I bought your book. Um, it has not come yet. And so no worries, uh, no worries. but, but with that, I read um, a portion of the sample on Amazon and you talk about this story. And I think you might even told me in, in person uh, about you just bought a farm and I don't know how long ago that was. Yeah. You live with a, maybe a couple other families or nearby or, or with a couple of families. Um, but let's, let's talk about that. So that's really about place and land and, and what's that been like? Why did you, you know, buy this little farm outside um, Colorado Springs, I believe. Yep. Um, yeah. Talk, talk, us, talk to us about that. We did not buy the farm to escape. We did not buy the farm to sort of nostalgically hold on to an old America. Uh, We wanted to give our kids a chance to put their hands in the soil and to learn. And we said, if we're going to go out there, let's do all the things we can't do in a neighborhood. So we're not going to go out there and just kind of retreat and be suburbanites just kind of camping. But we're going to go out and actually try to live this together. So my brother-in-law, is he's a high school principal, but he is a cowboy and a handy guy. He's got all the gear. He's got a couple bobcats, you know, skid steers and big tractor. And we've got six horses out there. And we've raised and butchered and sold 20 cows in the last three years, uh, 30 pigs, bunch of goats. We've been breeding dogs. And uh, our kids have a little egg business. We've got, I don't know, on the ranch probably 120 chickens. 
And so they're all working. One night, here's a, here, here's a funny story. I told my kids, be at the table at 6 o'clock. Dinner will be hot and ready. Hands washed, sitting in your seats. Yes, sir. And then they run out to play with their cousins. So my boys come back at 6. They're sitting in their seats, hands washed, ready to eat the food. My daughter's not there. And then my phone rings, and it's my brother-in-law next door. So we share this ranch with two other families. My brother-in-law calls, and I go, hey, David. And it was Lillian, my at the time 12 year old on the other end she goes dad i'm so sorry i know you said six o'clock dinner's ready hands washed i'm gonna be probably 20 minutes late and i i wanted to be frustrated but i i made myself just wait i said okay what's the what's the deal and she said dad we aren't done castrating the piglets yet and i've got about 20 more minutes so i'll suture them up and i'll get right over and she comes in 20 minutes later washes her hands sits down i just thought when in the world did I imagine my 12-year-old would be late to dinner because she wasn't done castrating the piglets? So we're, we're, we're trying to give our kids a chance to put their hands on the work, to learn, to understand how food gets to the table, to build camaraderie with cousins and friends. We, we've built two miles of fencing over the last couple years, uh, creating new pastures, and uh, just working hard. So our rule is with our kids, you've got to earn your dinner, You've got to earn your shower, and you've got to earn your sleep every night. So they come in uh, hungry and dirty and tired, and we know that's the sign of a good day. Well, I love that, and you know, and that's I think that's one of the, the challenges of, and maybe the book speaks to that too. Is just our our modern day. It's it's hard to, you know, you think of even like working on a car. Like it's yeah. our, a lot of times our even our own folks that couldn't even help us do that because the way cars are built now. I mean, they're just. Right. Their computers essentially, and just learning, you know, yeah, putting your hands in the soil, you know, build making gardens. I mean, all the things that in past generations were necessity have now become kind of not necessary or, um, you know, just a, a bonus to, you know, if you have the land, if you have the space. Um, so I, I love that just that idea of it's not about a hobby, it's not about, you know, just kind of escapism, but it's saying, hey, what, what can we learn from that? What can we, um, you know, glean from that? And I think that's that's probably what, what, you know, your conversations about Eugene and Wendell Berry and it's, it's, what does it give back to us? What is it? What's yeah. the gi- gifts that it gives, gives to us? It's not just us taking, but it's also what it, what it kind of gives back to us. Now, um, th- this is interesting because you're a pastor. Um, I'm a pastor, you know, living in pastor world and, and one of the challenges of being a pastor, and I think you actually share a story about, um, having this opportunity to go to another church is, pastors just don't stay very long anywhere. Um, and, and again, that can be denomination to denomination that can be church to church. That can be for a variety of reasons. I I understand that. Um, but what has it been like for you to kind of have that kind of mind shift of saying, Hey, I could, I could leave and go somewhere every four years if I wanted to, or five years or 10. I mean, it's just a lot of guys do that. A lot of women do that. It's just, it's, it's just part of the game, but to say, what would it look like to stay in a, in a place? How have you kind of like reconciled that work that through, um, you know, saying I'm, I'm committing to, you know, new, new life for long term. Was yeah. there a shift? Was there an experience? Was there, what, what, what helped you kind of even, you know, birth this book about staying sure. in one place? Well, I think part of it is family of origin stuff. My parents lived as if they were going to die doing the work that they were doing in the place that they were doing it. We live in a culture of impermanence. Half of our marriages aren't working. So kids, right there in front of them, they're seeing, oh, 
there are no institutions that last. There are no stories that endure. So, all of the technology, every iPhone that y any of us are holding or computer we're using, they're made to be obsolete within 18 to 24 months. Like everything that we're doing right now, and we've got marketers who are paid to make us dissatisfied with the actual lives that we're living and the relationships that we have and the places we are and wanderlust is thrown up in front of us all the time like the, the grass is greener there's a better story rise up and transcend the the limiting confines of the story you're inhabiting and and be a global brand be an icon make meaning and so we just have to interrogate the cultural moment that we're living in and just say, what are the messages coming at us? And, and how is that working out for us? And then how do we resist those messages? So family of origin, I watched my parents live faithfully and, and be rooted in a place. Uh, but I, as a pastor, I'll just say, I can't do my work properly without compounding years of trust. I, I can't step into someone's living room who's going through the worst moment of their life and do that as a stranger with any kind of authority or credibility. You, it, it, you, pastors are supposed to take care of, think about the very word. It's pastoral, pasture. You're supposed to help pasture God's little flock that you are an under-shepherd in. And so uh, pastor is, is rooted language. Like this is my piece of ground. I know where the water is. I know where grass is. I've got a rod and a staff, and I know that there are enemies coming in, wolves coming to... But no, I'm going to help take care as best I can of these people. So pastoral ministry, I can't imagine living and having any kind of authority or credibility bouncing from place to place in three-year circuits. It, it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> Right. And, and, you know, and you, you share, I think uh, in that story about, you know, this opportunity, potentially another church or, you know, going, Hey, this is a great opportunity and it looks great. And there's all these, you know, benefits to it and all that. And I think sometimes that, that mindset of just, you know, career and, you know, promotion, yeah. I mean, creeps into the church too. And and it's it, as much as we say, you know, we're about the people, we're about roots. Often it's like, well, yeah, that church got more money and bigger, you know, more staff and, you know, um, you know, I've, I've, facilities. I've, yeah, yeah. Right. It's like better band, you know, whatever it is. Um, so, um, you know, I appreciate you, you sharing that because I think, I think what you're maybe hinting at is, is a very countercultural posture of, um, Hey, everybody's bailing. Everyone's leaving. Everyone's just not rooted. You know, what would it look like to actually put down roots and see what could be, could be done in a place? Because I, because I, again, I think there's just a subtle shift in our, in our minds of, well, if I'm not going to be here long-term, then I don't really see the people across the table. Right. You know? right. right. If I, if I'm, I've have a five-year plan, you know, it's, I can hold relationships loosely and kind of, you know, just put in my time until it's, it's time to move on. We're the first generation in history that hasn't known our neighbors. Mm -hmm. What? Yep. Right. I mean, like take someone from 1500 and drop them into your local context and have them just watch for a day and watch their astonishment at how we live. And we are living a human experiment right now. We're the first society in history that has really just our moment here in the first world west. You can't even talk about this stuff in the global south right now. 
living, you know, hopping from place to place every three years, unless you're a migrant worker and you have to. But I'm just going to venture on over to Dubai or I'm going to try Austin or I'm like, what? But because we have deep enough pockets, we think here in America, we think as long as you can pay your bills, that's what makes you rich. But anthropologists and philosophers and theologians and social scientists for centuries have been saying, you know what, the good life consists of a community of people, a web of relationships where there's trust, where there's protection, where the net will catch you if you fall. That makes you rich. A place to call home with regular routines, going into the little restaurant and having people know you and know your children and help you raise your children. That's what makes you rich. Elderly who who have their grandchildren visiting them and showing up and popping over to the house because they can and then seeing them into their rest. That's what makes you rich. So in the first world west we're saying uh, the sign of success is when you get to the place where you don't need anybody else but in human history the great sign of deep riches is is when you find yourself embedded in a community of people and there's that care and you're known and you're ushered into your rest that's what makes you rich so we just have to again interrogate the moment that we're living in and say how's it working out for us with our incredible hypermobility yeah, because I think, like you said, in, pa- in history in the past, like it wasn't even an option. I mean, it's it's not like like this is a new phenomenon. Like you know, even our parents' parents, like they didn't right. have that options, you know, right. same options that we might have. And, and it's just because we have the option. I think we we think, oh, we should do that because we can. You know, um, no, I love that. So um, so Daniel, you've kind of given us like the thirty thousand foot, you know, kind of framework for the book. And, but I want to, I want to dig a little deeper into, cause a, a lot of what we talk about in the podcast too, is, is the actual creative process. Yeah. And, and I love talk, having these conversations because I think every writer, every creator is different in the way they approach things. Um, but I want to start with just the idea level. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, get, get the seedling of an idea of this book, but I, I want to kind of take you back and say, okay, obviously you've been thinking about these things for a long time, but was there like, like a, like a moment where you're just like, okay, now's the time I need to start putting things on paper or in my laptop or however, yeah. you know, your muse works. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Let's, let's start there with, with kind of the idea. Like, how did you know you had some kind of book or some kind of message or some kind of thing? So I, I was sitting before I'd written anything, I was sitting with a friend who's an agent and he, a literary agent, he said, Daniel, I've listened to you for 10 years now. I've, I've heard you preach. I've read the stuff you've written, blogs, podcasts, whatever. He goes, you're a creator and I want to sign you. I want to be your agent. And I said, oh, okay. And he, he said, now tell me like when you don't have any notes and someone calls you up and says, talk, what do you talk about? What is, what's the thing that you don't need notes to be able to talk about it? So I start riffing on this and I said, you know, and, and I just, I, I hate, as a pastor, I hate watching people live this life of instability and they treat churches like they treat gyms, you know, which everyone has the best building, which everyone has the best equipment and which everyone has the best childcare for the cheapest price. <laughs> and we, we treat our churches like that. And I'm, I'm watching these people and I just want to say to myself, I'm talking to my agent, I go, just like find your place, find your people and try to die there. And he goes, stop. What did you just say? I said, find your people, find your place and try to die there. And he goes, we just hit a nerve. Like, no, who's saying that? 
who's saying that right now in this moment that we're living in? He goes, that's in you? And I said, that's in me. He goes, I want you to write me two chapters and send it over in the next couple weeks. And I want to put a book proposal together because I don't know, as I think about the landscape of of Christian literature, I don't know anyone who's saying try to die there, recover the vow of stability. So please write that. So for me, it just came alive and I started going. I sent it to him. He put together a book proposal and then we wrote in the a second book, this Chasing Wisdom one, which actually ended up going first, the Eugene Peterson story and Recovering Sages. And so he shopped it to a, a few different uh, publishing houses and we got three offers and went with Thomas Nelson. So to me, it's that I can take you to the seat I was sitting in, in the cafe that I was sitting in on the day that it happened. And it was like it, it, we hit a nerve and that try to die there concept became the power of place. Yeah. So when you have, I mean, you've blogged, you've, you know, write, written sermons and books and, and all these, all these things. <clears throat> now you have your agent obviously in on that. He's resonating with it. You're resonating with it. Sometimes those ideas are just like, I have to follow this as far as yeah. it goes and yeah. see where, where it lands. Um, now I imagine there was probably a moment where you, you said, okay, I have this seedling of an idea, yeah. but this is not a book. This, yeah. is, this is a, just an idea and it has to be a book. And that's a lot of work to get to that. Um, what's your process for going, okay, I got, I go to a place and die there. Now, how do I get, you know, sub chapters, quotes, yeah. ideas? Um, what, what does that look like for you? So the power try to die there, which became the power of place. This was 2017. So I created this, I'm a paper guy. So like I pulled out a little stack of like, legal pads for me i've got to get it in my hand i've I've, something starts unlocking instead of just this i've got to ideate with i'm tactile so so i started trying to get an outline in place i started thinking what are the books that have marked me what are the who are the authors the voices the poets the the Wendell Berry's out there, the movie, the movie makers or documentarians, uh, reading reports on what is the good life like, or the um, the National Geographic study, Blue Zones, the the five hot spots of the most centenarians per capita of any places in the world. So there's Loma Linda, California, there's Sicily, Italy, there's Okinawa, Japan, and them saying, okay, there are 100-year-olds here in these five places in a disproportionate amount. Why? How, how do these people live so long and why are these five spots, the five blue zone hot spots on the planet? And let's chase those threads. So much of it was about place. It was about relationships with people who had been rooted in the same place. It was about local food that they grew there and working with their bodies and walking through the communities. So I'm just, I'm, man, I'm devouring and reading and jotting and making notes in binders and filling up, reading articles and saving everything. So for me, it's like building a constellation of content. You don't really yet know what it's going to end up looking like, but you're identifying, okay, there's a there's a, a thing going on over here. There's I need to tap into this resource. I need to pay attention to these social scientists. So big, broad ideating and content constellating, if you will. And then you begin to take that for me, how I create is, okay, what are the themes that are emerging here? 
and uh, how do I begin to organize this? So you, you put all the pieces of the puzzle on the table and you start trying to build the puzzle. And then you get an outline and then you, 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 you start going in that direction knowing that it's going to be very different by the time it's done. You, you got a right to explore. If you, if you map it and it's all predetermined and it's an inflexible outline, you're going to write the book that you think but, but but you're not going to be open to learning along the way. So, um, but but then I just say like, you got to write where the energy is. If you try to go chronologically through your imagined outline and st- stay rigid, it's like uh, taking the big ACT test or whatever. They'll say, hey, if you get stuck on one, move on, keep going, know what you like, go with where the energy is, and then when you're done with the rest of it, circle back to these moments. So as a writer, I would I'd find where man, this is what I really care about. I'm gonna just go there and let it live, and then you begin to piece it together later. So talk back to me there. What are you hearing? Yeah, no, I I think the the idea of like go where the energy is uh, mm-hmm. is, is a really those that are listening um, and those usually we just have audio. So if we don't have the video, he held up a big giant three ring binder, just so you know that with lots of notes. So (laughs) I love that. Um, Lots of papers, lots of, and actually in our writing group, uh, Daniel had lots of notebooks and and was writing the whole time. And I'm sitting there with my laptop. So that's different, but um, the energy piece is what I was thinking of is sometimes when you feel blocked or you feel like I I don't have the motivation today is actually write about the thing you're just really excited about. Like you're this, and it, it may not even go anywhere, but like, what's that little, you know, you're talking about sociology. It's funny. You said, um, you say, uh, not your Belinda. You said Loma Linda. Loma Linda. Yeah. My wife actually used to work in Loma Linda. We used to live in Redlands. It's just outside. Yeah, there. It's a big yeah. Seventh-day Adventist. Seventh-day uh, Adventist. And yeah. that was one yeah. of the major themes. These people worship together. They yeah. eat fish. They, yeah. They're trim and keep going. And then, and then the other thing was um, I'm Italian. And so um, yes. I, read, I read some stuff about the Italians and just the, the food they eat and, you know, how healthy they are. <laughs> it's amazing how long they live. Actually, my Italian grandmother's like 96 and just yeah. like the doctors Local are like, she's wines. yeah, right. You know? Yeah. Um, but, but going to back to the point of energy of, you know, where do I, I like when you talked about not linear um, is, is sometimes you have to kind of just write what's hot, like what's fresh, what's exciting, see where that goes. And then, you know, you're going to pace it together, especially nonfiction. I mean, you're, you're, kind of going to be all over the place and yep. put, putting pieces together. Now, now on the nonfiction side, um, you are, you know, you want to be precise. Obviously your book has some research and you've done some cultural analysis and some you know other things. I mean, you've told stories, obviously those are your own and, and other things. Um, you know, there's scripture, there's all kinds of stuff. Um, w- research is always the question I get a lot is like with nonfiction writers It's like, okay, research, how much do I do? How much do I keep? You know, what do I keep in the book? What do I not? What is kind of your process to like sift through all the, especially when you're getting into like sociology, sociology and you know, all this kind of stuff, how do you know what to keep and what not to keep? I mean, do you have like a filter for that? Does your editors help you with that? Like talk us through that a little bit. I was going to say, there's nothing like a great editor who will just slash and, and shoot you straight and ask does it pass the who cares test because the writer is so enmeshed in their own story and their own desires their own passion their own pet projects and hobbies and all this and an editor comes in from the outside and goes yeah i appreciate that that's precious and everything but 
who cares? <laughs> like you haven't yet elevated this to the level of me wanting to continue to turn the page in this section. So you need to go back to the drawing board. And it wise is the writer who who knows how to do the dance with an editor and who in humility says, please shoot me straight, make me work for it. Uh, uh, so an editor, outside voices, I'll read it to my wife. She's she's a real estate broker and uh, driving kids around to soccer practices. And she doesn't speak Christian ease and doesn't speak subcultural Christian language. And that's as refreshing as it gets. She'll go, yeah, Daniel, that's great that you like that. I'm not sure that that's broadly appealing to a tax accountant. I'm not sure that other real estate brokers will feel as much energy on this as you do. I think you've still got some work to do. What if you, what if you, or all of your metaphors are metaphors that particularly men will like? Like having a broad section of people, a cross section of people, put eyes on it and say, yeah, you've got some great stuff here. Appreciate this, appreciate this. This is gold. Man, I, I'm not sure this is working yet over here. So uh, including lots of voices and in my acknowledgments, I, I got to thank all those people because there was a bunch of people that I said, please help me make this better. And no, that, and you need a team. I mean, that's what, you know, people think writing is just such a isolated, you know, individual thing. And yeah, you're putting the work together, but like you're having this team that's eyeballs on it, editors, you know, your wife, your friends, your, you know, colleagues, all that. And, um, and, and that's, you know, that's part of the game. So, um, that, that's really helpful. Um, and, I think what you're hinting at too, is you can't be precious with your writing um, because sometimes you tell the story and you're like, this is the best story that anyone's ever going to hear in the history of the world. And it's going to like change people. And, and they're like, actually, it doesn't really help, help your book along. It it just does. It's great story, but it's really not necessary. And then you're just like, you know, I want to strangle my editor. Right. Um, Stephen King, one of the great writers on the planet. He talks about our writers. We think of our work as our babies and, you know, and, and I'm this, I've wrestled for this. And I, I brought this into the world right. and he says, kill your darlings, yep. like be ruthless in editing, like slash it up and don't be precious about it. And if you'll, if you'll do the bloody work of editing, you'll come out with something that's vibrant on the backside right. of it. And I, and I imagine if it's, maybe it's like, maybe you've experienced this. I know I've experienced this is sometimes the stuff that gets cut is actually for something else. And exactly. so, so you got this research, you got this illustration, you got this story and it's like, oh, I can use that over here down the road five years from now or whatever. Yep. Um, and that's, that's part of it too. So it's not like all the work is, is, is wasted. Um, right. So, um, so process you're, you're in your notebooks, you're filling up binders, you're, you know, doing research, trying to figure out you something of an outline. You know, I, I love what you talked about, just kind of keeping your outline loose, you know, yeah. because it is embarrassing. You know, we write these outlines and they're like, oh man, I'm like way over here. Mm-hmm. You know, I was so obsessed about this outline. Um, and I think that's good. I think that will free a lot of writers just to think through that. Like, it's okay. Like you're going to go here and there. Yeah. Um, I know even when I've sent outlines to, you know, editors and publishers, you know, the book ends up being something totally different and it's, <laughs> and it's, it's okay. Um, now I want to talk a little bit about um, just in the process piece, the creativity piece is, do you have any kind of rituals or any 
kind of habits, practices that kind of get you in that kind of writing space? Do you have time you set aside? I know you're a busy guy. You got a you know church and a family and a, and a farm and all these things going on. Um, you know, friends, community, all, you name it. Um, but but when you are going to write a book, especially one that's hey it needs to be due by this date, do you have a sp- particular time you do that? Do you set aside a certain time? Talk us through just kind of your rhythms and habits. That yes. Go along with that. Yes, I'll spitball in my response to that. First, I always have a notebook handy. Uh, what was it, James Faulkner, great American novelist? He said writing a novel is like building a chicken coop in a windstorm. You got to grab whatever's flying by and nail it down before it gets away. So, like to to just constantly be able to just jot down the thoughts that come. So there's that. But early mornings for me, I don't I don't love that. It's not natural. I'm not the guy who just falls out of bed at 4 a.m. happy and ready to work. But I know that at 6 o'clock, I've got three humans that are going to come racing down the steps, and it's game on until they're asleep. Mm-hmm. So from 6 a.m. till 8.30, 9 p.m., it, there's just not going to be a quiet moment. So early morning, 4 to 6, is like clutch for me. And uh, no phone no interruptions, no inbox. Like the first thing I'm coming to is the writing. And that's the only thing I'm going to do for two hours. And and you're going to write trash for a good stretch of the, the time. You have to punch through the wall. Just keep writing. It's not about it being beautiful and just just write. And so some people love the word count thing. You know, I'm going to get 500 words a day. There have been times where I've done that and it's been helpful. There's other times where that's a yoke that's not easy and a burden that's too heavy. And it just, so you got to pay attention to where you are in time and what life is like. Um, for me, in, in the two books that I've written, I've had to, I've had to have uh, three to four two-day chunks eat for each book where I go away. I'm driving up to Breckenridge and Lisa knows for the next 48 hours I'm gone. If you need me, that's fine. Call me. I can be back home in two hours if something happens. But I'm going up there to do nothing else than write. And there's something that you can do when you have 48 hours devoted to the work that you can't do when you have a 90-minute slot. So writing a book, you'll need some 90-minute slots, several of those, right? But you also need some 48-hour chunks where this is all you exist to do. And you deeply get into the work and you hit a flow that you can't hit when you're sending emails and kids are popping in and you're having work meetings and you're signing check requests and life is happening. So extract yourself from the moment, from your daily flow a few times for a bigger project and go away. And so to me, yes, it's the early morning thing. Sometimes word count helps just to keep the thing moving. But I've got to have three to four of those moments that I can look back on and say, when I went to Breck, man, these two chapters came out of me. And if I hadn't gone away, I'm not sure I would have had the space to really dive into that thought. So talk back. So word count. Um, I want to attack that in just a different way. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have specifics from your publisher that says, Hey, this book needs to be X amount of chapters, X amount of words. Do you even have that? Like when you're starting the project, do you have kind of an idea? Like this is a 150 page book, 200 page book, 
9,000 page book, you know, any thought of that, like you're writing to a destination or just kind of like, you know what, I just need to get it all out and then let everyone else carve it up and make it. 45 to 55,000 words, which will be 220 to 280 pages. Okay. And so, yes, that's what the contracts were signed for. Um, I think Wise is the publisher who doesn't make that a value in itself. Like, we've all read the books that should have been 32,000 words, but they found out how to get 48,000 on the page, and it reads like that. So I think that, you know, publishers who will sort of hold to the spirit of the law and go, look, I just want good words. So if if we sign for 45 to 55, but you've got 40,000 good words, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yes, that is that can be a taskmaster that can be. But you just have to you have to turn it off. You have to put your head down. You have to show up to the work. All the great writers say, hey, you want to be inspired and you want to get up and drink coffee and lattes and feel real precious about this. Oh, bless your heart. The real writers bust their butts. They get to work when they like it and when they don't like it and they plow through. And so there's just no other way to do it but to do it. Now, you you talked a lot about handwriting and, you know, writing down notes, doing it by hand, notebooks, all that. Is there a point where you get into the, the word document, um, you know, whatever software doesn't really matter yeah. um, where you, you can actually, you know, I know my penmanship's horrible. So it's like, so someone can actually read it. And yeah. is there, is that part of your process? Like taking all the notes and then eventually yes. putting it down. So I'm really just the hand stuff, the handwriting. I'm really just creating a word cloud. I'm doing storyboard word associations. I'll just make myself, I'll, I'll put the topic or the chapter title or the subject up at the top of the page. And I'll just write until all of the thoughts and ideas are out of me. To include, oh, this story about Grandma Wheezy or that story about President Jimmy Carter in Plains, Georgia. Or, you know, so just say, here's the topic. Here's kind of the the idea that I'm thinking around. Now, just write until you can't write anymore. So I'll do that in my legal pad and uh, no idea is a bad idea. Just put it all out. And then I'll start to outline on the legal pad what a chapter could look like. Okay, let's let's talk about this. Let's talk about the ancient vow of stability and St. Benedict and the context he was speaking into. So you begin to outline that, and then that's when I'll shift to the Word document, where I'll say, okay, I've, I've done the Word ideating, created a cloud, I've created a little mock outline that's very flexible, but now let me actually get into this and see where it's going to go. So that's when I'll turn it into a word document. So I'll have each chapter as its own word document in the power of place file introduction, chapter one, chapter two. And then as I'm getting toward the end and it's time to start compiling, I'll take all all those individual chapters and put it in one word document. And then I'll see what my final tally is and then start going through editing that. And then I'll send that into my editor when I'm done. So the the question of all questions, this is divided nations, um, divided families. Um, do you edit as you go or do you edit at the end? I edit as I go. Okay. Uh, you know, Marilyn McIntyre was saying last week, you know, what was it, Anne Lamott saying, just write your crappy first 
rough draft and turn it in. And I saw Marilyn kind of hesitate when Wynn said that. And I did too because I was like, I, I don't really turn in crappy first drafts mm-hmm. uh, because I, I care too much about it. I Like I want – when someone reads it for the first time, I want them to go, wow, this he really worked on this, not – shoot, this needs a ton of work. So I do edit as I go, but sometimes I'll set a timer. I'll, I'll get my phone out and I'll say 20 minutes timer. And I'm going to write for 20 minutes without any editing. So there are times where you just need to let the free flow go and just kind of get it out. But I'm always tinkering and playing with it and coming back to it. So that's going to be different for everybody. But for me, I do edit as I go. I, you know, I found my, the first book I attempted, it, it was such a mess. Cause I took that advice, you know, just write just the crappiest thing you've ever written. And then just, you just got to get it out of you. And I, I know there's some good, you know, wisdom in that, but then I had such a mess that I didn't want to look at. I mean, it was just so overwhelming and so bad. And so all, you know, and I've kind of shifted my approach yeah. to just, you know, clean up polishing. It doesn't have to be perfect, but like at least getting something that's like readable. So it's not like, yeah. here's my mess. Good luck, you know, fixing it yeah. to whoever's going to read it. Um, no, I love that. So, um, music or no music? Depends. And the music is very different. You know, it's it's all mood based. What do I need? What's the weather outside? What season of the year is it? Am I happy? Am I melancholy? What's going on in my family? Did I have a tough pastoral appointment that morning? Or is the wind at my back and life is working? It, it but. So I don't have a I, I know a friend who just wrote a book and he 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 had music the whole time and it was only one song for the entire book. I'm like, whoa, uh, that, that couldn't be me, but it worked for him. So you just got to go with what works for you. Yeah, I, I learned that the hard way. I was listening to a lot of Adele and then I started crying, <laughs> and I started crying. So I was like, this is not this is not a good song. Like for, a lot of break, a lot yeah. of up themes. Yeah, I'm just like, why am I weeping and in, in the fetal position? Um so uh yeah, no, it's it, it's funny. Um yeah, and, and you know, and, and a lot of these questions are really just like hopefully people are hearing like there's not one way to do this. Like yeah, yeah. You can have rock and roll music or no music, you can write in the morning or at night, you can, you know, yeah. it, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the Interstellar soundtrack, this last book. Yeah. I, I, that was a regular thing. And I think it helped me think cinematically. Mm. You know, if I'm just playing my favorite songs, individual yeah. songs, there's no real theme. But with, with a soundtrack, an hour and 20 minutes of Interstellar, like it was telling, it was taking the people on a story arc, you know? And so for me, I think it helped my writing to be a little more thematic and where's this thing headed instead of just my favorite individual tracks. Now, um, as we, I want to be sensitive to your time. And as we kind of get to the back end of this, this conversation, um, you know, one of the things I, I don't think creative people or just writers or whatever you're creating businesses, your nonprofits, you name it, starting things, making things, painters, dancers is, sometimes when you make this thing and you live with this thing for so long um, and you, you put it out in the world, there's kind of this come down and, yeah. and what's that like been for you? I know you've done a couple of books now. Um, I think even as pastor, sometimes you, you preach yeah. a sermon and it's like this come down, you're so excited for it and you share it. And then it's like, Oh, now it's done. Like what, how's that been? Like, what do you kind of do to like, you know, kind of say, okay, I did this thing. You know, how have you been feeling since you've kind of got it out of your system? It's out in the world. People are buying it. 
you yeah. know, now you're this famous author, you know, right. that's, exactly. um, so like, like, do you have any kind of like practices just to kind of help you like stay grounded, stay yeah. third? Um, yeah. So for me, family routines, I, I just, my kids, they don't care. I mean, <laughs> right. they're proud of me. They love me. They think it's cool, but they don't care. They just, right. Will you tickle my back as we go? Yeah, we play Legos. Yeah, will you play Legos? And can you yeah. take me to basketball practice? And I think that it helps me to go back into my regular life and my regular job. And with my wife, who just loves me and is unimpressed and doesn't, she just loves me. It's okay. It helps me go. This isn't the most important thing on the planet. So take it seriously. Do your very best work. Be serious about the craft. But it's time to go to soccer practice. Could you help me pack the bags? Could you help make some peanut butter sandwiches? Go do that wedding. Go do that funeral. Life goes on. So that helps kind of keep you human and keep you grounded. Uh, I do. I would say it's important to celebrate. You, you need to mark. You need to mark time. I'm. I'm not great at this, and I don't think Americans in general are great at this. But there are other societies, the Jews, the, the, gosh, they just mark moments, rites of passage. Hey, it's your bar mitzvah. We need to stop the world and everyone needs to come together to look at you and say, man, God did a good job. Well done. And mark the moment. So we had a big party out at our place. We, we built a barn. And so we had 120 dear friends come out for dinner and they had me read four sections of the book and I was crying and people were clapping and hugging it out and they bought my book and they had me. Say, These are my best people coming together at our place to have a good meal and to just celebrate the completion of a long project. So I would say you have to mark time. You need to be able to step back from it and do a Genesis 1 thing and go, and he saw that it was good. And and then the next morning you get up and you've got carpool runs and all kinds of just life. But um, for me, it's important to mark the time. I think that's, that's really helpful. Uh, and I think you could even, you know, add in just mini celebrations. Like I think the creative process can be so grueling and you have dry days and hard days and you're trying mm -hmm. to get this thing done, whatever it is. Uh, but even to say, Hey, I'm going to spoil myself with Netflix when I get yeah. my writing in, or I'm gonna have a yeah. glass of wine or I'm going to, you know, whatever. Cause I think sometimes we need that to just kind of reaffirm like, Hey, <laughs> we're doing it, you know? <laughs> um, and not, you know, it's, it can be a long, long process. Yeah. Um, so Daniel, last question. I yep. love asking this question. Uh, I'm going to ask you, a, a, it's a general question and then it's a very creative creativity specific question, but the, the general question is what is the book that you gift or recommend to people more often uh, than others? Um, that, that's just general. That could be any kind of book and then same question, but just on the creativity writing, whatever kind of uh, stream of books, what do you recommend? What do you gift uh what are those, those those books and you can't say your own book so yeah yeah, yeah. and i wouldn't um <laughs> for me brian doyle's one long river of song is unbelievable it, it's going to be kind of niche for some people and other people are like what but he's just wow when he writes i feel things uh another novel a russian novel called loris l-a-u-r-u-s Oh my gosh. 
that was a, a book I'll never recover from in all the right ways. So when I'm thinking novel, it would probably be Loris. When I'm thinking just a pure writer that, that evokes and that wakes up the world, I'd say probably One Long River of Song. And then what would you say as far as like writing practice, creativity, what's a book you just say, Hey, you guys need to read this. This is really helpful. Anything come to mind? I, yeah. I love Annie Dillard's the writing life. Um, really helpful. Stephen King, I mentioned earlier on writing is excellent. And uh, yeah, I think those would be the two that stand out to me as, okay, if you want to write, go watch someone who's doing it. You know, I like the, the Annie Dillard and the, the, even Stephen King, they almost give you permission to write. Like it, it's a lot of what they're saying is like, you can do it. Like it's, you know, and here's these successful authors written all these books and everyone knows their name, but it's like, you can, you can do it and yep. go and do, um, which I love. Yeah. Well, Daniel, we have gone to and fro. We have covered a lot of ground. I'm so thankful to have the, had this conversation. I'm so glad our lives have intersected. You too, man. Um, and um, hey, all the best. I, I hope and pray you you sell lots of books and get this book into many people's hands. I think it's an important subject. Thanks for helping a lot of people today with your thanks. insights about creativity and writing. I know you're going to help a lot of people. So thank you for that. Thanks, bro. Much love. Yep. We'll talk to you again. Sounds good.